Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So today, we are going to bring you a bit of a fashion history fairy tale. And it begins one day when a young girl was taking her bath. She was about nine or 10 at the time. And, you know, this daydreaming that she was doing while getting lost in the copious amounts of bubbles in her bath could not hold a candle to what was about to happen next. The bathroom door suddenly burst open and her fairy godmother appeared. And she entreated the young girl to hasten herself out of the tub for they were about to embark on a journey to an enchanted land far, far away. It was not long before the young girl found herself whisked away to a magical place full of strange sights and smells. The people who inhabited this land were dressed unlike anything she had ever seen. They wrapped their bodies in sumptuous bright textiles and practically dripped in gold from head to toe. Even the fantastical beasts of the place were bedecked and festooned in finery and precious gems. Sounds pretty spectacular, right? It does, but this story isn't as fantastical as it may seem to be. The bathtub part of the story is quite true, although the fairy godmother was actually the young girl's adoptive mother. And as the young girl herself put it, quote, after seeing an elephant in India with a ruby necklace, I thought anything is possible. That young girl's name was Tina Leeser. Yes, today we will talk about an important American designer that you have worked on a great deal, April. You actually wrote your MA thesis on Leeser. Yes, this is true. And I've also written about her for the book, The Hidden History of American Fashion, Rediscovering 20th Century Women Designers, which is an anthology that details 18 female designers who were incredibly influential in their own eras, but for various reasons have slipped into obscurity today. And some of Lisa's contemporaries of the 30s and 40s and 50s, like Claire McArdle, for instance, some of them remain well-known. But the fact is, is that Lisa was but one of the designers alongside McArdle who contributed to the development of what has become known as the American look. So today's episode is going to be a bit of a summation of my research on Lisa. And from time to time, we will directly excerpt some bits and baubles from my published works on her. And I'm stating this up front because, well, Cass, it seems really weird to officially quote yourself. (laughs) And we, of course, have already done an episode on the American look in season one. So feel free to check that out, dress listeners, for a bit of a broader examination of this period when the success of ready-to-wear and sportswear in particular thrust American fashion onto the international stage. So without further ado, the life and work of Tina Leeser. Well, Cass, I'm really glad that you said life and work because the two were actually very much entwined for Lisa. Her childhood and her family background informed her subsequent career as a fashion designer. 
And she was born Christine Buffington in Philadelphia in 1910. But her own biography, as well as the press that was produced by her contemporaries when she was alive, they give her birth name as Christine Wetherill Schillert Smith. And the era's social stigma regarding adoption is likely the cause of this inaccuracy because as a small child, Lisa was adopted by her mother's cousin. Yes, both Lisa's birth mother, Mary Edith Cox, and her adopted mother, Georgine Wetherill Schillard Smith, belong to the Wetherill family of Philadelphia, whose socially prominent status in the city dates back to the founding of the Philadelphia Free Quaker Society in 1781. Both Mary Edith and Georgine enjoyed quite privileged childhoods, but shortly after Lisa's birth, Mary Edith separated from her husband, Charles Buffington, due to his chronic alcoholism. Then living in California, Mary Edith seriously struggled to provide for her and her young daughter by offering her services as a freelance artist. So Georgine and her husband, Charles, arranged to adopt Lisa after spending several months wintering in California. They had been childless so far in their marriage, and they also had the means to provide young Tina with not only the best education, but also a life of luxury. And Tina's birth father later perished in a trolley accident, and Mary Edith happily remarried a few years later and became known in artistic circles as Mary Edith Cox Mason. And we're not exactly sure, Cass, but it seems like Lisa may have had some contact with her birth mother throughout her life because she enjoyed this bicoastal upbringing in New York and also in California, attending some of the finest private schools at both, all the while displaying a talent for art and music for from a very, very young age. And this is not surprising given the fact that many of her family members were professional artists or musicians. Lisa's aunt Eugenie, for instance, was known to be such an impassioned, frenzied artist that she had difficulty maintaining her own household. And both Lisa's birth mother and adopted mother were skilled painters as well. Georgine actually trained under noted American painters James McNeil Whistler, which I absolutely love, and Robert Onry, and exhibited her work at the now famous 1913 Armory Show. Yeah, Cass, I've always thought that given the circumstances of her family life, um, that Lisa's creative talents were probably preordained. Um, and Georgine was both an artist and a major, major art collector. And earlier, we alluded to the fact that the Wetherills were quite well off, but I think the fact that Georgine's art collection included works by Monet, Cezanne, Van Gogh, or Van Gogh, depending on how you want to say it, uh, <laughs> Picasso, um, that just might kind of put their financial means in a little clearer context. Just a little bit. <laughs> in fact, the entire Wetherill family was deeply committed to the arts, both personally and financially. The family's prosperity allowed them to direct significant resources towards funding public art programs, and Lisa's earlier immersion in philanthropic efforts went on to shape her views on fashion's role in the global economy. In 1915, Lisa's aunt, Christine Wetherill Stevenson, converted one of the family's mansions in the Philly into the Philadelphia Art Alliance, which still exists, by the way, and has been the sponsor institution for many noteworthy presentations throughout the years, including early experiments between John Cage and Merce Cunningham in 1950. Yeah, which is very cool. And they've done a lot of cool things now, and they still have their doors open to the public, so you can go check out what they do. And this means that Lisa was really brought up as a member of Maine Line Society. That's what they call it in Philly. It was this world of breeding, elegance, and traditional good manners. But at the same time, there was also this really strong bohemian streak amongst the women of the Wetherill family. 
Her uh, birth mother, Mary Edith, was quite free-thinking. She was a devoted member of Mary Baker Eddy's Church of Christ Scientist. And Georgine, her adoptive mother's convictions, ran much more towards the metaphysical. She was a theosophist. Um, we've brought this up several times on the show now. Yeah, we have. Um, but <laughs> she was a believer in a philosophy that kind of draws on the mystical tenets, among other beliefs, of Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and also the Kabbalah. And she was a really committed believer in theosophy, and her studies really led her around the globe, frequently with young Tina in tow. And it was this informal education Lisa received circumventing the globe as a child during the 1920s that made the greatest impact on the aesthetic she would later develop as a fashion designer. Living in India for a period while Georgine studied under gurus and theosophists, young Tina became enthralled with the colorful pageantry of the Indian Maharajas and developed a deep abiding love of textiles and a keen sense of color. Yeah, so basically growing up, life was good. And Lisa blossomed into a worldly young woman. Her education on the East and West Coast were occasionally punctuated with significant periods living abroad. And in 1929, Lisa made her formal debut into Philadelphia High Society. Two years later, she married Curtin Lisa, who was a marine biologist. And after their wedding, the newlyweds relocated to Honolulu in the early 1930s because Curtin was working there at the Academy of Science studying fish. And Lisa took up spearfishing herself and diving, scuba diving with the Hawaiian locals. And she quickly realized that her East Coast wardrobe did not at all fit her new lifestyle in Hawaii and that there was this really ripe market, particularly in Honolulu, for very chic sportswear and also evening gowns, um, you know, of chiffon and, you know, light, breathable materials that were better for the warm weather. It was there that in 1935, Lisa opened a specialty shop that catered to the unique needs of island life. She sold high-end ready-to-wear lines such as Nettie Rosenstein and Germaine Montiel, as well as her own custom designs, which she created with the help of a French dressmaker. A shipping strike in the early years of the business tested Lisa's creativity, and she was unable to receive the wholesale garments she ordered from New York, nor was she able to acquire the materials she ordinarily used in her own designs. This forced her to improvise, and she turned to the materials that were at hand, sailcloths, ropes, grommets, and other types of materials readily available on the island were used in her early play clothes. Did you say ropes? <laughs> yeah, I love ropes. that. <laughs> It's fun. Like, one of the things she would do is, like, she'd put a grommet in something and then weave a little um, rope all the way through as, like, a trim on a garment. It was it was fun. She also used native textiles such as palaka. And palaka was a shirting material that was typically worn by Hawaiian field workers. And she also began creating her own hand-painted and printed textiles. And these frequently featured motifs of either bright island botanicals or underwater seascapes. Leeser's boutique Tina Leeser Gowns was located directly across the street from the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, which attracted a wealthy jet-setting crowd. Her client base at the Honolulu shop included socialites such as Mrs. George Vanderbilt and celebrities such as the Dolly Sisters and Joan Crawford. So while Leeser's professional life was beginning to blossom, her personal life was less auspicious. Her marriage to Curtin was unraveling, and sometime between 1936 and 1938, they actually divorced. With the marriage dissolved, it was everyone's expectation that Lisa would return to the mainland and resume her life as an East Coast socialite, particularly Georgine, whose telegrams really pleaded with her daughter to come home after her divorce. 
Except for, remember the part earlier when I said there was this bohemian streak that ran all through the Weatherwell women in the family? Well, Lisa was no exception, and she decided to remain in Hawaii and try to make a go of her small business. And Cass, she had already made a bit of her name for herself, so she decided to keep Lisa as her professional name for the remainder of her career, even after she remarried again in 1948. And I'm assuming that Tina is a nickname adapted from Christine? Of course. The stars and celebrities who became Lisa's customers in Hawaii included some of the most photographed women in the world. The unique nature of her clothing was noted by buyers, and soon department stores, including Bonwit Teller and Saks Fifth Avenue, were making inquiries. The initial test run orders they placed sold out in a matter of a few days, and Lisa's operations in Hawaii actually struggled to meet the subsequent rush of new orders. And we should stress that these are small operations that she had happening in Hawaii because at this time, she had only six seamstresses in her employ. And while these large orders from major department stores were quite the coup for this small designer working so far in Hawaii, filling them on time really became a major concern. And we have to remember that they were working half a world away They were doing sourcing, they were doing shipping, and even, you know, the pace of communications, this really slowed down operations. And she really needed manufacturing capabilities in the States if the business was going to expand. Sometime around 1940, Lisa established manufacturing operations in the U.S., but the growing pains of entree into the mass market nearly wiped out the business. First, there were technical difficulties related to the color fastness of Lisa's signature hand-painted textiles. Then their business manager died unexpectedly, and this was followed by union problems. And Lisa said, the more we sold, the more we lost. With the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1942, Lisa was required to close her Hawaii operations and leave the island. Not long after, however, she received an offer from the American manufacturer Edwin H. Foreman, and their in-house designer Tom Ragantz had been drafted into the Army. And so when he was left hanging in the lurch without a designer, buyers and also some mutual friends recommended that Foreman meet with the newest fresh face in town, Tina Leeser. And this ensuing partnership, which went on for well over a decade, ended up being a win-win on all fronts because Foreman's operations were really this well-oiled machine with years of experience mass-producing high-end ready-to-wear. And this is what Tina desperately needed. And at the same time, Foreman's label gained a hot new designer who was just now hitting the American market. In 1945, Lisa won both the Neiman Marcus Award as well as the prestigious Cody Inc. American Fashion Critics Award. Her work was covered extensively by the American fashion press during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And she was her designs were frequently pictured in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and newspapers of the period that are rife with department store ads for her designs. So the June 1945 issue of Collier's Magazine affirms Lisa's pervasive influence on American visual culture, noting that, quote, now you see Lisa-clad beauties everywhere from magazine front cover to nail polish ad on the back. And indeed, Lisa's work was featured in countless advertising campaigns during the 40s and 50s, ranging from anything from Cody Cosmetics to Coca-Cola and forward. And while Lisa took American fashion by storm in the early 1940s, it would be setting her sights abroad that would distinguish her from many of her fellow designers. You know, Cass, we've already spoken a bit about Lisa's travels with Georgine when she was growing up, but what we haven't mentioned is that this wanderlust 
never waned. She was a voracious international traveler and was constantly inspired by the beauty of the dress traditions that she encountered from around the globe. Yes, throughout her career, Lisa adapted her global inspirations into the sort of fresh, easy-to-wear garments that came to exemplify the American approach to sportswear. Lisa flavored her designs with elements picked up in the course of her extensive travels, perhaps a shoulder treatment she had seen featured on an ancient Greek vase, or a nod to the draped and pleated backs of the 18th century dresses depicted in the paintings of Jean-Antoine Watteau, which she encountered in a French museum. Well, many considered Lisa's designs to be bold. She explained that, quote, anyone can wear my clothes. It might be said that they are daring only in that they are different from the usual run. What gives a person the idea that a certain dress is extreme is usually not the dress itself, but how and where it is worn, end quote. And Cass, really more than anything else, Lisa just wanted her clothes to be Fun. A white-knit jersey dress from 1945 is a sublime example of how Lisa executed the inspirations picked in the course of her travels into the broader lexicon of American sportswear. And the draping of the skirt was inspired by the South Asian dhoti, a long cloth typically draped and tucked in a manner to give the effect of pants. Traditionally worn by men, Lisa subverted gender and used a similar draping technique for her dress. And what appears to be complex drapery is actually quite simple. And an image of the dress appeared in Life magazine in January of 1946. And as they explained, the skirt consists of one piece of material, two and a half yards long, which is passed through the legs from front to back, then drawn up around the waist and tied up at the front. And this April is where we interject the conversation about cultural appropriation because this Dodie-inspired dinner dress would not fly today, I'm guessing. Well, possibly not. And I... <laughs> And the first to admit, Cass, that Lisa's work does kind of occasionally wander into this gray territory, as did that of many of her contemporaries. And I think it's important for us as historians to avoid the pitfalls of presentism, meaning um, viewing the past through the lens of our contemporary issues. And one way that we can do this is by using primary sources of the time period that we were speaking of to understand how things were viewed then. And these very important conversations surrounding cultural appropriation that we were, are having today simply were not happening then. And actually, Lisa went to great trouble and expense to work with, promote, and lift up her fellow creators of fashion from around the world. And this was far from the norm at the time. So so just kind of have to keep that in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa's work is definitely part of the conversation that we're uh, having today surrounding inspiration versus appropriation. And for Lisa, I think as you mentioned and will prove is she was genuinely inspired by the artisans she encountered in her journeys. And as you mentioned later in the episode, we are going to learn more about how Lisa's appreciation for these artisans really extended beyond the aesthetic, which is a very important element of her work and into what became actually international collaborations. And now a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. April, listeners may recall our recent two-part episode on the history of the swimsuit. And I have to say, Lisa's swimwear is really one of my favorite aspects of her work. She had quite a long career as a swimwear designer, which I guess makes perfect sense given the fact that she got her start in Hawaii. <laughs> 
sure does. And some of her swimwear designs were considered a tad risque for the time. Click Magazine, which was kind of this um, Hollywood movie celebrity rag at the time, called one of Lisa's particular successful designs from 1944, quote, the most daring attire to appear on beaches to date. And it was this two-piece bathing suit, which featured an asymmetrical strap on the bandeau top. And she had fallen in love with the one-shouldered tops worn by many Balinese women when she visited Indonesia. And this got her thinking about using asymmetry in her own work. And Lisa's strapped bandeau top was offered with coordinating bottoms by the way of high-waisted shorts or also a short sarong with the shorts built in underneath. And to say this design caused a bit of sensation might be an understatement. Variants of this suit were featured in magazine after magazine in both editorial as well as advertising spreads. It was produced in a myriad of textiles, ranging from a two-tone jersey knit to whimsical conversational prints and even an authentic scotch tartan. And really, April, the popularity of the suit opened doors for Lisa, who was soon approached by the swimwear brand Gabar. Her swimwear designs were available exclusively through a highly profitable partnership with Gabar for more than 20 years. Yes, she very quickly developed a reputation for not only her swimwear, but also her resort wear, because oftentimes swim and play suits served as a basic building block for her travel collections. You know, say, for instance, you're at the beach, but you want to go have lunch at the super adorable cafe. So she created coordinating skirts that you could just throw over your swimsuit or your play suit. And all of a sudden, it looks like this very prim and proper sundress. And some of her play suits even adapted easily from day wear to evening wear, depending on the type of coordinating skirt, which is quite genius. And she herself was quite the adventurous. So she thought about traveling a lot and created these easy-to-pack modular capsule collections specifically for the lady traveler. In 1948, Lisa would marry Pan Am pilot Jim Howley, who indulged her love of travel even more frequently. For their honeymoon, they embarked on a four-month around-the-world tour, and Lisa returned with 19 additional suitcases jam-packed with sources of inspiration. (laughs) Books, artwork, jewelry, clothing, and especially textiles. She loved her textiles. Yeah, she's my kind of girl. And I think here is where we see, Cass, that some of the influence of her family's background is starting to come into the picture because she begins to think about using philanthropy because her relationships with the makers of these textiles is quite touching. She had early successes using native Hawaiian textiles, palaka, for instance, and this paved her way for the patronage of small artisanal textile producers from around the globe. She used exquisite silks from Thailand, sturdy Guatemalan cottons, and airy Indian gauzes. And whenever possible, she preferred to commission these textiles directly from local artisans, um, as is the case of this black handwoven cotton that Lisa commissioned directly from textile artists that she worked with in Assam, India. And this was additionally hand embroidered with modes of travel that were common in India at that time. And it's really cute and charming. Should these textile artisans not be able to provide the quantity necessary for mass production, Lisa would license the rights from them to copy, adapt, and then mass produce their designs according to her specifications in the U.S. So again, no other designers are really going to this level, right, April, to to work directly with artisans and, and really respect their work. Right. So copying by way of licensing was very much an established practice at this time. Couture houses made a pretty penny selling the right to copy their original designs to department stores and manufacturers 
all over the world, Lisa simply applied this practice to textiles as well. And she also endeavored to assist international textile companies' entree into the mainstream American market. Lisa was one of the very first American designers to adopt former spy, then-turned-textile entrepreneur Jim Thompson's luxurious Thai silks into the American market. And just a bit of a side note, uh, the story of Jim Thompson is quite fascinating. It involves a bit of an unsolved mystery. So perhaps one of our listeners would like to request it as its very own fashion history mystery, mystery, just saying. <laughs> yes, Lisa, like Thompson, was American, and they were of like minds and their desire to introduce Thai silks to the U.S. wholesale market, really as a way to reinvigorate the faltering Thai silk trade. And likewise, during the Japan segment of their honeymoon trip, Lisa had a revelation about the state of the textile arts in post-war Japan. She seized an opportunity when her presence as a famed American fashion designer in Japan caused quite a stir. And we will hear more about that after a brief word from our sponsors. Welcome back. Apparently, Lisa's visit to Japan was publicized in the press because, as she explained, quote, There, I could hardly leave my hotel room for the stream of people who came to see me to find out what we were wearing in America. They wanted new modern styles suited to their way of life, yet they felt that they could not break with the traditional kimonos devised by their ancestors. It was then I suggested a national design contest. The Manichi Press, the largest Japanese press, publicized the contest all over Japan. Thousands of sketches came in, and these were carefully narrowed down to 200 and sent to New York for judging. And remember, this was 1948, so only three years after the end of World War II, and Japan was in the throes of its rebirth as a modern nation. Lisa's hope for the competition was that contestants could, quote, devise their own modern styles using their beautiful fabrics and their own traditional background of styles to start from. In order to highlight Japan's rich textile heritage, one of the rules that Lisa instituted for the competition was that at least half of the materials for a garment were required to be 100% Japanese origin. In the fall of 1949, 20 of the best sketch submissions were selected, and the designs were made up into garments, which were then presented in the first-ever national fashion show held in Japan. And prizes were sponsored by many of Lisa's friends in the American fashion industry. And for their modern interpretations on the sartorial traditions of Japan, the two winning designers, Michiko Konishi and Toshiko Kiyoti, received what Today would be about $4,200 each in prize money and also full scholarships to, to study design in the United States. April, as of course you know, the contest was such a success, it was turned into an annual event. And get this, the Japanese press would later cite Lister's instrumental role in laying the foundation for what would become the Japanese modeling industry when she created this competition. Yes, and this very fact, Cass, has actually caught the attention of many contemporary Japanese historians because over the last few years, I've had several researchers come all the way from Japan to investigate Lisa's archive, which we have at FIT. So it's been very cool to be able to discuss her life and legacy with these scholars from all over the world who are also recognizing the significance of her work. And, you know, it's it, part of this is because that she saw fashion as not only a business, but also as a means of improving the lives and working conditions of artisans of fashion worldwide. I credit her early immersion in her family's philanthropic endeavors in shaping her views on the American fashion industry's generative power, you know, to do good. 
Leisner's devotion to this cause was lifelong. In the early 60s, she briefly took a break from fashion following the adoption of her own daughter, Georgine, who was named after her own mother, of course. But in the mid-1960s, a new chapter of Leisner's career would open. She reincorporated as Tina Leisner International. She spoke of her dream of making fashion an ambassador for international relations, saying, "'Today the world is very close. We no longer work in or for just one country.'" all have something to give each other, and the designer must see how they fit in. I mean, I have to say, admittedly, this um, smacks of globalism today, but I think that what we need to do is recognize the fact that at this time, the overwhelming majority of clothing purchased in the United States was still being made in America. And, and the epicenter of the American fashion industry was, of course, the 7th Avenue Garment District in New York, where the designers, the factories, the textile purveyors, the milliners, the shoe designers, and all these other specialists like pleaders, button makers, etc., they were all working in close proximity to one another on 7th Avenue at that time. Right, which is what made her plan for Tina Leeser International rather ahead of its time. Years earlier, via mutual charity work, Leeser had developed friendships with several prominent Indian women. Together, they launched an initiative called IDEA, I-D-E-A, shorthand for International Design Educational Association. Pramila Woggle, daughter of the former Indian ambassador to the United States, and Dina Wadia, daughter of the Pakistani statesman, joined Leeser in setting up the Naveel Wadia factory in Bombay. Leeser owned a half interest, and the remainder was split equally between Woggle and Wadia. Ever philanthropically minded, Leeser's newest venture was as much about benevolence as it was about business. She recognized fashion's potency in the global economy and saw a mutually beneficial relationship in the Indian partnership. She explained, quote, their workmanship is better and they need more work to allow them a better standard of living. I hope this will help promote the angle of international thinking and economic cooperation. Launching the IDEA initiative, Lisa became one of the first prominent American designers to outsource garment production internationally. But as you can imagine, April, treading unfamiliar territory was not without its problems. At this time, there were few precedents for manufacturing abroad which is the exact opposite today. It's so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa laughed later about the challenges, saying, at first, we couldn't get the men tailors too interested in working on dresses. Then I gave them some French dress dummies and showed them how to match dress seams. Now it's become a big game. Why in one week they got so carried away they made over 100 dresses? <laughs> I love that idea. And many of the dresses produced in the Bombay factory utilized local cottons and silks. And, well, this was the 60s cast, so the color palettes of some of these textiles were electric, basically. As Vogue noted of Leeser's designs in 1967, they were, quote, bright enough to turn night into day. And in addition to the dresses and slim brocade suits that were fashioned by the Indian tailors, she also created resort wear in the form of these voluminous jeweled silk caftans and hostess pajamas from, um, you know, there's one particular pair of hostess pajamas that are a favorite of mine that the fabric is inspired by an Italian ecclesiastic textile, but instead it was realized in this riotous 1960s color palette of green, metallic gold, and purple. You can get a sense of what that looked like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and however, Leeser's idea initiative proved itself to be too soon. By 1968, it was clear the system for manufacturing abroad was not quite yet viable, and production delays and shipping problems resulted in buyers impatient for their promised stock, and Leeser dejectedly returning to manufacturing her line stateside. 
Sadly, it would not be Leaser that solved the intricacies of producing garments internationally, but a legion of other designers and stakeholders over the coming decades who cast their sights farther and farther afield in search of cheaper manufacturing alternatives that unfortunately lacked and largely continue to lack to this day, Leaser's spirit of humanitarianism and also just working with and celebrating local artisans. Exactly. You know, because for Leaser, any potential fiscal benefit to manufacturing abroad was always secondary to the human element. She truly believed in the potential of fashion to have a beneficial impact on the lives of its makers all around the world. And sadly today, that dream to share prosperity across the fashion industry has largely been twisted and morphed into the story of greed, waste, and all too frequently abuse. Following the dissolution of the IDEA initiative, Leaser continued on with scaled-back operations in the U.S., catering to private clients and select high-end boutiques. Throughout the 1970s, she continued to find inspiration in art and costume from around the globe and throughout history. Her fall 1975 collection, for instance, played with Belle Epoque shapes and the darkly whimsical color palette seen in the paintings of Toulouse-Lautrec. Lisa was now approaching 70, and she herself began to slow, and at the same, so also did the company's production. She had always been a larger lady, a fact that the fashion press managed to mention on more than one occasion um, in the form of a barely-veiled slight. But the fact of the matter is, Cass, is that she had been in the fashion business for nearly 50 years, and she was just getting worn out. She was ready to retire. You know, she wanted to spend more time at her lovely farm in Sands Point, Long Island. And there's a really fun Life magazine spread of a barn party that she did at the farmhouse. And perhaps we'll post some of those images on our Instagram. Yes, we must. Tina Leeser officially closed her doors in 1982, but not before passing the torch to the next generation of American designers. I actually did not know this before this episode, but she gave a young Liz Claiborne her very first job in fashion. For a period, Claiborne worked for Leeser as a sketch artist. Mm-hmm. In the late 1960s, Leeser remarked to a reporter once, quote, Always, everywhere for me, it is the fabrics that excite and inspire. Long ago, I worked to bring the beautiful brocades, the kimono silks, the sari, and hand-woven silks into the wholesale operations of American designers. Now they are very much part of many firms' collections. Lisa really was a global nomad, and her wanderlust and love of the leisure lifestyle were definitely reflected in the clothing that she produced. And all along the way, Cass, she extended her hand to countless artisans all over the world in hopes that they could also share in some of her successes. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the implications of globalization, good and bad, in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our Fashion History Mystery Minisode, where we answer your questions about all things fashion history. If you'd like to submit a question, you can message us on Instagram at just underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can, of course, follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. You may have heard us talking about our June 2020 dress trip to Paris. Well, shucks, Cass, it sold out in four days. <laughs> <laughs> But don't fret, if you are still interested, we are considering offering another week um, if there's enough interest. So if you'd like to keep abreast of that development, head over to likemindstravel.com and submit your email and we will keep you posted how that shapes up. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pregram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon.
Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts.